this is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or a discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Amen. Well, again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. And I want you to be able to walk away with this truth that we are ordinary people with ordinary problems and an extraordinary solution. Ordinary people with ordinary problems, but we have an extraordinary solution. What happens so often is that when we face life and face these ordinary problems, they become as if they were extraordinary problems with no answer. And what we try to do, right, is we try to bring in an ordinary solution to ordinary problems when God has given us an extraordinary answer, an extraordinary solution. So here's just what this looks like. For all of time, humanity has dealt with sin, sickness, and death. We've always dealt with these things. Like immorality has been rampant. Sickness has always ramped up. Uh, death will always happen. We are leading to our, our lives are leading towards death. Like that is coming for all of us. We have this reality that like this is the path towards what, this is what's going to happen one day. The extraordinary thing about Christ is that he came into a world with sin, sickness, and death. He came into a world that was plagued with ordinary problems that everyone experienced. And as he comes into the midst of that, he doesn't endure that death and doesn't endure that sin without victory. Like he's victorious over sickness, victorious over disease, victorious over sin, victorious over death in a way that we could never do it. That's what's extraordinary about the gospel. We are all going to face sin, sickness, death. We are all going to face immorality around us. The thing about Christ is that he was victorious in a way that we could not be. And so we have an extraordinary solution. It's extraordinary because it's different than what the world would expect. It's different. He, he doesn't die the death that we expect. We expect him to die, be buried, and stay there, and he comes out of the tomb right? We expect someone to live and to have faults, to live and to sin, but he is not ordinary. He lives without sin. Like we don't expect this man, but yet he comes and he lives on this earth to show us that he's victorious over sin, Satan, death, all sickness. He's victorious over it. But what, here's what we do, right? We go into our world and we face, as ordinary people, we face ordinary problems and we try to find ordinary solutions, right? So we, what we try to do is we try to insert our own answer. Like, oh, here's what we might can do. Here's, here's how we can solve that issue. If we can just do this, maybe we can fix it. And I think what happens often is we either talk about one of two things. We either talk about the problems, so our ordinary problems, or we talk about the solutions, so our ordinary solutions, more than we talk about the extraordinary solution. And so a real challenge for us today is we remember this ordinary people with ordinary problems, but we have an extraordinary solution as we remember that. Our challenge is to not focus on our ordinary problems. Our challenge is not to talk about our ordinary problems and ordinary solutions, but to talk about the extraordinary solution that is Jesus Christ. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is the solution. It's, it's the thing that everyone needs that we have. And it is the solution to what this world faces. So I want you to walk with me through Acts chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30. 
It says, Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So back up with me to Acts chapter 8. Now remember where we were. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Stephen has just been martyred for his faith. He was a man full of faith and full of the Spirit. He was a man full of wisdom. He was assigned the role of being a deacon, so he was caring for people, uh, and he was teaching the Word of God throughout these areas. So he was preaching, and because he was preaching, the Jews were against him, and ultimately they stoned him to death. In Acts chapter 8, it's the result of his death. Okay, so I'm going to read Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4. You can turn there, or I'm going to read it out loud. It says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Here's an important question. Who are those? Verse 4, when it says, so those, so we have to ask, who are the those? You back up with me to verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. I think this is awesome. Okay, so this is not the seminary trained. This isn't the people who followed after Jesus and heard him and walked with him and touched him and was called out by him. These are the people that after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they heard about Jesus and followed after him, not seeing him physically like the apostles did, but they hear about and believe, turn to him as their Lord and Savior. Persecution happens, and then what happens? They scatter. All except the apostles. So where are they going to preach the word? And so when you ask the question, who's preaching the word in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and Acts 11, verse 19, who's preaching the word? It's the people. It's not the apostles. And of course they are preaching. They're in Jerusalem and they're figuring things out for the church and they're developing theology by the word of God being poured out into their hearts and they're developing all these things. But the ones who are going to preach are the people who've heard the gospel responded and Jesus Christ is their Lord. Now, I want you to think about this. In, in church culture in America, we have this uh, uh, system of doing church, which is primarily what we would call come and tell, right? Come and show, come and hear, something like that. Show and tell. There it is. Thank you, guys. I told my wife earlier, man, when I just forget phrases, I just wait till one of y'all say it. So keep it coming. Come on. Um, show and tell. There it is. I've been saying come and tell the whole time, so let's just go with whatever. Uh, anyways, all right, so what we do really is we ask people to come into a room, and there's one guy on a stage who preaches the gospel to them, and we hope that they respond and believe, right? That's kind of how the church culture has set up. I'd like to rethink that with you, and I have been for the past three years here, and I hope that you, if you're new, will rethink it with me. What if we did a strategy of not show and tell or come and tell or something of that nature, but go and tell? right? And you can remember it that way. It's not come and let me show you. It's go and you guys show them, right? So we gather to scatter. 
That's how I always think about it. We gather to scatter. Another way to think about it is like this. We are not a cruise line. You don't come in here and sit and enjoy and reap all the rewards. We're a battleship. We're ready to fight. We're victorious over sin, Satan, and death, and we need to act, act like it, right? We're going to battle together, linking up arms. We say all these different things. We're not a cruise line. We're a battleship, right? We're not come and show. We're go and tell. So when we look at Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4, it's not the apostles, right? It's the people who are going to preach, I say this often, there's not one preacher in this room. There's a bunch of preachers in this room. I've been meeting with preachers since this morning. We always call the person on the stage preacher. Guys, I'm just preaching to the people who are preaching. And and look, some people say, man, sometimes like I hear the gospel and, and and there's no opportunity for me to respond. Here's what I tell you that. If you believe in Jesus already and you hear a gospel message preached, start taking down notes because this is what you're going to preach this week, right? Let me just fuel up your tank. Let me just give you some things that you can say to the world. Let me just give you some things that as you scatter, you're going to preach, right? Okay, so we're gathered together. We're going to encourage one another and then you guys are going to scatter out. This isn't come and show. This is go and tell. We're here to encourage one another. Are you ready? Like, this is what we're doing. I remember Pastor Bill a couple months ago gave us this challenge. Are you ready? He was constantly moving on that, constantly moving on that. Go and tell. Okay, go back to Acts chapter 11 with me. Verse 20, let's hear about some more preachers. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. So he set it up in two different scenarios here. We've got the Palestinian Jews who uh, knew Hebrew and probably Aramaic and had an Old Testament background who were preaching the gospel to the Jews. We have these Hellenistic Jews who were from Cyrene and Cyprus, so they knew uh, Greco-Roman culture. They knew uh, Greek, so they could speak Koine Greek uh, to the people who were around there. So they, uh, they send out missionaries to the different places that kind of understood the culture and the terminology and the language of, of these different separate groups. And the gospel moves forward. Look at verse 21 with me. The Lord's hand was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. This is such an interesting phrase to me. When I see this, I, I think about this. And it says, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. What about those that believed and didn't turn to the Lord? Have you ever thought about that? We see this throughout scripture though, right? We see people who follow, uh, to some extent, follow after Jesus because they're like, man, that guy, he's performing miracles. He gave me food. He provided for me. Like miraculous food, right? 5,000, 4,000, all these different different situations where God was performing miracles. Maybe somebody saw him walking on the water out to his disciples and they're like, yeah, I'll follow that guy. I believe that guy. And they start saying some of his commands and they're like, man, I, I believe that he exists. I believe that there is a God who exists. But I'm not going to, he's not my Lord. You think about it even more, like, where are we working? We're talking about Antioch here, right? Antioch was a city known as the capital of Syria. It was established uh, kind of as a gift to one of the Caesars um, and became the political capital of Syria, which was a Greco-Roman culture-dominated area. It had gods, uh, tons of gods that they would worship. Um, So heavy heavy influence from culture. Some of the gods were worshipped in different ways uh, that were, uh, would have been considered immoral to Jews and uh, Christians at that time. Uh, Prostitution worship was common for certain gods uh, in their day. And so this was an immoral 
temporal uh, but governing area for Syria, and they are doing gospel missions in the middle of it to the Jews, to the Greeks, to all of them, a cultural kind of combination uh, from Greco-Roman empires and Palestinian influence, about 500,000 people, 30,000 of them were Jews, so it wasn't a heavy influence, but they were there. And all of a sudden, these Christians come in to start preaching this gospel message, and a significant amount of them turn to Jesus. So go back with me. Why would the demons say that they have some sort of faith? They believe. How can they say that? How can people believe in God but not turn to him as their Lord? It's this idea that, they, that you can believe that a God exists. You can believe that Jesus Christ lived his life, even died, and some to the extent where they even believe that he raised from the dead. But is he Lord? You see, Caesar is Lord to them. That's why Romans 9 through 11 is so significant. To write to Rome where Caesar would be, to declare that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, is earth-shattering, like it's Greco-Roman culture-shattering. And so we even backtrack into Acts chapter 11, and they're saying they believe and they turn to the Lord, which means they turn away from Caesar and turn towards Jesus because he becomes the king of their life. And church, we have got to ensure that we don't just believe these are a collection of random facts, that Jesus didn't just exist, but that he's the Lord of your life. So verse 22, news about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the, uh, with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So this, we've seen this, right? We saw it in Samaria. We saw it with Saul. What they want to do is they want to say, okay, is this a real movement of God or is this some sort of fake movement? Like, is, this, is the Spirit of God really moving in this? And it says they sent Barnabas. So we got two guys. We're going to look at Barnabas and then Saul in two different scenarios. First, we have Barnabas. Barnabas was a Hellenistic Jew. He um, had, so now Christian, following after Christ, but they hadn't been called Christians yet, right? So Barnabas had a Greco-Roman sort of culture. He understood it. He had this background. He knew the, knew the language. And so they don't send, notice this, Jerusalem doesn't send out the circumcision party that they talk about, right, in Galatians, and we see this throughout the text. Like, this isn't the crew that's going to go in okay, and look at Antioch Church and go, okay, yes, we think you believe, but you don't obey the food laws. You're not following the, the festivities and the events. You're not uh, circumcised, so you need to be circumcised. Like, we don't have this circumcision party going out to inspect everyone to say, here's what you need to do to become more Jewish. It's not the goal. We send Barnabas out there who understands the Greco-Roman culture, who might understand Antioch better, to go in there. And when he sees the grace of God moving in these people, he encourages them to be strengthened and to devote themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's doing that, he's not making them more like Jerusalem. He's making them more like Christ, right? 
This is so significant. When we do missions, and Pastor Glenn would affirm this, we've talked about this many times before. When we do missions, we aren't going into Haiti or Africa or Europe or wherever it may be. We're not going there and trying to make them more American. We're going there and trying to make them more like Christ, right? We're not going there and like, hey, man, this is how you should set up your stage. These are the instruments you should use. This is the church lobby. This is what it should look like. That's not what we're doing. We're going there and we're saying, hey, we, we see you. We know what Christ looks like. Let me help you become more like Christ. Right? What does it look like to be a Christian in that culture? What does it look like to do gathered worship in that culture? That's the question you ask. It's called incarnational missions. Uh, Barnabas was able to do missions in Antioch. He was able to see and encourage and to grow these different people because he knew their language. He knew their, their customs. He knew what they did, and he wasn't trying to make them more like Jerusalem. He was trying to make them more like Christ. This is really challenging to us as Christians in our culture today. Are you trying to make more people more like you by the way you dress, by the way you talk, by the songs you sing, whether traditional or contemporary? Are you trying to make people look like your church, or are you trying to make people look like Christ? You feel me? Like, are we trying to make people look more like Christ, or are we trying to make people look more like what we see as the ideal church-going person? Like, you have to be able to sit in your seat really well, mute your cell phone, listen really well, have a piece of paper and pen out, right? Like, these are not what we're doing. What we're trying to do is show people how to love people, right? Verse uh, 25 shifts. Barnabas to uh, Saul. Now, note down that phrase right before it, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. We've already seen that in verse 21. Uh, Those who believed turned to the Lord, and it was a large number of people. Now look at verse 25. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So Barnabas travels to Tarsus. Uh, It's about an eight-day journey, so it's a significant journey. 16 days round trip, right? Uh, not Probably not the easiest thing for you to do, especially back in their day. So they go out to get Saul. Now it, te- it says that he kind of, he has to find him. Apparently Saul's most likely what we know of Saul. He's doing missions somewhere. So Barnabas is deliberately, like intentionally trying to find Saul. Why? Because when he goes back, he has a large group of people and he wants someone else who he can train to disciple them. And, and I think, I mean, I love this as a pattern for the early church and for us today. What does it look like to go and grab somebody and say, hey, I see potential in you. I see God working in you. Come with me. I'm going to show you how to make disciples, and we're going to do this together because I can't do this alone. There's too many. You see, it said a large group. And then it says Paul and, uh, or Saul and Barnabas are investing, teaching a large group. They're encouraging them and strengthening them. They're challenging them to be devoted to the Lord, and they are teaching them how to follow after Jesus Christ together. Barnabas goes and gets a brother, and he's like, hey, man, I need your help. What does it look like for you to pull somebody alongside you to disciple them so that they might disciple others? Come on down here, Saul. Let's go back to Antioch. We're going to disciple some people because there's a movement of God happening in Antioch. And so Saul comes with him. Now, you see at the very end of this passage, verse 26 at the end, it says, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
And it says this three times in scriptures. It says it in Acts 26 and 1 Peter 4.18. So you can look at those two texts. I think it's 1 Peter 4.18. You guys are welcome to check that one. But um, it's three different times it calls them Christians. Every single time it calls them Christians, it's not the Christians themselves saying it. It's someone else calling them Christians. You see, at first it was a a designation of uh, persecution. And I'll tell you why, what happened here. Here's what happened. Uh, And you may have heard this before. If you have, walk with me through this. In Jerusalem, as long as you were a Jew who moved into the nations and remained Jewish, the Romans wouldn't persecute you. Because when they took over nations, they allowed the religion to stay. That's how Rome operated. Not all conquering empires did this, but Rome did. They allowed religions to stay the way they were. So when the Jews uh, started believing in Jesus, as long as they were still called Jews, it was fine. But when the people around them started to see a movement happening, you see, what do they see? They see around them, they see people start believing something else. They see them start to act different. They see their customs start to change a little bit. They see their synagogue meetings teaching something else. And ultimately, they see them saying, Jesus is king. That significant phrase. And so everyone starts seeing that and they label them something else. Now they're not Jews, they're Christians. You had Herodians. You had people who followed after Caesar, uh, different Caesars who would call it you know, we have Christians, Herodians, it's whoever you follow after. So they were followers of Christ. Christians are followers of Christ. As some would say, they're little, little Christs, as some like to say it. But regardless, it wasn't till the second century, the second century until the Christians actually took on that term. It was other people who were saying these are Christians. Because once you divide out the Christians, once you separate them out, what are they? They're a new religion. This is a new group of people who are quickly growing and who have a different king than Caesar. And so the people around them recognize this happening as they call them Christians. And now persecution has shifted from Jerusalem into the Roman Empire. Now walk with me through verse 27. See what happens. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So it gives us a little time slamp, stamp during Claudius, right? So we know, it's, we think, uh, especially during these journeys, somewhere around 42 to 44 AD. This is right before persecution starts to happen to the church. Right now, persecution in this time was happening to Jerusalem, not in Antioch. So the church, this young, growing church, sees Jerusalem, the the Christians there getting persecuted. Now they're facing famine. And so what do the Christians in Antioch do? Like, hey, we're going to care for you. We're going to support you. And hopefully that will be reciprocated because it's not about five, ten years later that all of a sudden Emperor Claudius and uh, Nero and Domitian, the next few, are going to start persecuting Christians. And now Jerusalem ought to be that hub for protecting uh, the Roman uh, churches. Right? So uh, we can think about this as a church as well as we challenge ourselves to think about the world. Our brothers and sisters throughout the world are being persecuted today. 
It's not hard to find information. I've said it to you before about 100,000 to 200,000 Christians die every year because they're persecuted for their faith. I think we need to keep that number in our mind to bring up the reality because nobody else is going to tell you it unless you look it up. It's, it's something like, and, and you got to be careful here, but it's something like the world doesn't really care about Christians because as many of us can be killed as they want, it doesn't matter. They're not going to put it up and highlight it. We can just be killed. And I want you to know this because your brothers and sisters shouldn't die in vain. What you should do is you should see that happening and be some sort of support and encouragement to our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Think about it like this. If my sister, Macy McMillan, were in another nation and were persecuted because of her faith, like I would want to take care of her, right? Well, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our family, and our family is scattered throughout the nations. We ought to be praying for them, encouraging them, providing for them in ways that we can as they are being persecuted. The early church, specifically the church in Antioch, is a great example of how to do this. Because they look back at the religious city, Jerusalem, and say, we see you being persecuted. And they provide for them and they care for them. They do mercy ministry to them. Now, what does it look like for us, church, to see those around us who are hurting, to see those around us who are being persecuted and send care ministry to them? Do you see the growth and the progression of the Antioch church? And, and, and this is where American Christians, we've got to be super careful with our culture, is that we are not just preaching gospel that can, people can believe without Jesus being the Lord of their life. Because what happens is this, uh, this early church receives the gospel message. Some, a large portion of them believe and turn to the Lord. And then they're discipled by Saul and Barnabas. And then they start doing ministry. This care ministry is our, is our example of it. But they're also preaching the word because we know they scatter and go preach the word. So you can see that progression, right? They believe in Jesus. They're trained up. And then they go. We call it here gather, grow, go. They gather together to love God and each other. They grow in their spiritual journey. And then they go and to preach the gospel and to extend care ministry to the world. It's this progression of discipleship. So church, brothers and sisters, are we talking more about an ordinary problem or an extraordinary solution. I think the early church knew that in Antioch, a governing city with gods all around it, with sickness and death just like our culture faces, with immorality just like our culture faces, they knew that Jesus was king and they weren't afraid to tell people about the extraordinary solution that he was. So our challenge, my challenge to you is this. Do we talk more about the ordinary problems or ordinary solutions, or do we talk more about the extraordinary solution that is the gospel message of Jesus Christ? Here's where it gets tricky. Because the Word of God is true. The Word of God is challenging us to see this early church and how it worked. But today, you're going to face the world. And it's going to contradict the Word of God. Here's what you're going to be directly challenged with. Should the church be united by faith or should the church be divided by politics? Should the church be united by faith or divided because of the sin that we see in the world? Should we let our views on ordinary solutions disrupt our unity about the extraordinary solution? You see, because everybody in this room probably has a little bit different ordinary solution. 
Some of you may say, man, I think that this is the way we should do it. I think this is the way we should do it. But we all can agree in this. We should all be able to agree on this. All of those solutions are temporary. The only eternal significant solution is Jesus Christ. And that's what unites and binds us together. You see, churches throughout America today are dividing themselves. People are leaving. People are struggling. Churches are uh, uh, literally imploding because of political views and because they preach it from the pulpit. And here's what I'll tell you, and I'll tell you it always consistently. I will only say one political statement. Jesus Christ is king. It's the most political statement I can say. Yeah. We will always preach that truth. It will never change. He is king. And look, here, here's, here's how that infiltrates our culture today. Here's how that infiltrates us. When you go out there, preach about our king's solution. We can make up a bunch of ordinary solutions, or we can preach about the extraordinary solution that is Jesus Christ. And so church, don't be divided. Be united. Preach the extraordinary solution that is Jesus Christ. Because today, you are going to be challenged as you walk out of here, to put your eyes back on ordinary solutions, to take your eyes off of the truth and shift it back to what this world believes is truth. Maybe the most practical way I can say this is, if there was a person in here today, standing before me right here, who embodied all of the immorality, sickness, and disease, and was headed towards death, who embodied it all, literally everything that would divide you, where you would say, man, that sin, that struggle is evil, ugly, wicked, and I can't take it. Our culture is too far gone. It's too wicked. I can't stand what they're engaged in. Like all the things that you could say about problems that really characterize a lot of what Christians talk about in the culture, right? Like we like to highlight the problems rather than highlighting the solution. All of these things that we like to talk about, like, well, look at how evil this is. Look at how wicked this is. Imagine it being embodied right here. What I think would be the reality is if we took what we really say out there and what we really do out there is sometimes what it would look like is if that was standing right here what we would really do is just sit there and cast stones what would it look like for us as a church rather than casting stones to share of the forgiveness and freedom that is found in Jesus Christ you see as you go out there today you're going to be scattered the gathered church scatters And as you go, you're going to face sickness, immorality, disease, and people who are headed towards death. We all are. We can't avoid it. But as you go, rather than talk about the problems and the worldly solutions, why don't you tell them about Jesus? If all we can do is focus on problems and never tell them about Jesus, then won't the world always live in problem? Let's tell people about Jesus. Let's invite people into our relationships and our culture to tell them about Jesus. And if you in here this room, in this room today would be more likely to cast a stone or just talk about problems, if that's where you are today, then I would encourage you to talk to somebody around you about grace and truth, what it looks like to be Jesus Christ in our culture. So I want to invite the worship band forward, and we're going to worship through song again, but I want to challenge you. If you would, just close your eyes. What I'm, I want to challenge you with this as you reflect. Just think on these things. Ask yourself this question. Do I focus on ordinary problems, or do I preach an extraordinary solution?
Do we find ourselves, and let's reflect on this as a church, do we find ourselves preaching and discussing ordinary solutions or engaging and discipling people towards an extraordinary solution? Just reflect on that in this moment. As you do, I want to I want to allow you to think more in depth on this. In the past month, have you discipled someone? Have you weekly met with three to five people or however many you feel like you can disciple or bi-weekly or monthly or whatever that looks like to disciple people towards Jesus Christ with the intentionality of making them more like Christ? Have you discipled somebody? And in the same vein, look at the past month and ask yourself, have I talked about the problems of this world in the past month? And if you've talked more about the problems of this world in the past month than you've made disciples in the past month, we've really got to check our hearts. So Father, would you make us more like Barnabas? Would you make us more like Saul? Ultimately, that we would follow after you, that we'd be more like Christ. God, I ask that we would be strengthened like Barnabas was working towards, encouraged like Barnabas was. God, would you teach us like Saul and Barnabas did? Father, would you give us what we need to do what you've called us to do? I ask God that you would help us to see this morning in a fresh way, your son, Jesus Christ, who lived a life we couldn't live by living in perfection and conquering sin, Satan, and death, sickness and disease and immorality, by conquering all those things, by dying a death we couldn't die by taking upon him sin, even though it wouldn't be victorious because he was victorious over it, by taking upon himself death, even though it wouldn't be victorious because he was victorious over it. God, I pray that you would help us to see fresh this morning the resurrection that we couldn't gain, the resurrection that we could not be victorious with, that your son achieved for us so that we might too have life. I pray, Father, that you would give us a fresh, a new, an inspired, Reflection on your word, on your gospel, on your people, this church at Antioch, so that we might scatter to go preach your name. So Father, send us, scatter us, all of us, to be preachers, to make disciples. And we'll go where you send us, Father. We love you in your son's name. Amen.
and all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth speaks righteousness for me, stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. What can wash away my sins? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. gather church go scatter i pray that as you go you'll remember that you were sent in the midst of darkness to light it up and we hope to gather together with you next week at church but uh, i pray that you have a great week and that you preach christ as you go have a great week we'll see you later
have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.